holy. You're far more holy than we ever will be. We can't even comprehend your worth, your majesty, God. We don't have a lens with which to see you, and yet you condescend and you love us. You clothe us in a robe of sonship. You shower us with your affection and grace. And so we come week in and week out to worship you, to say that you are holy, to say that you are worthy of all of our praise and all of our affection, of all of our devotion. I feel it. God, I feel that I wander. I know every Christian in this room does as well. God, we feel that we wander. Call us back this morning. Call us back to your grace. Call us back to your love. Call us back to a devotion to you. We love you. Pay things in your name. Amen. All right, y'all can have a seat. I'm going to scoot back so I'm not spitting on people in the front row. How y'all doing? My name's Coleman. Um, I'm the other pastor here. Uh, at, and if y'all were at CBC Savannah, you probably recognize me from that as well. Um, I was the group's pastor there. And let me just tell you, it is a privilege to be here with you um, today. Um, so I've got Andrew's iPad here. He, he put his birthday down so that I would memorize his birthday. So there we go. Got it right there. If you, anyone wants to know, it's uh, 042589. So you can break into his iPad later. Um, all right, hopefully that, that doesn't, the noise doesn't keep up. So um, I'm going to jump right in pretty quick. Uh, so I, um, if, if Andrew's pretty intense, um, I can get like to an 11 out of 10 on a scale. So just, just to warn you a little bit, um, I, and, and it, I don't, can't even help it, okay? That's kind of who I am. Um, but just privileged to be here. I'm excited. I don't know a lot of you yet. And I'm excited to get to know you. And I'm not just talking about know your name and know where you work and know where you live and know your kids go to school. We want to be a church that knows one another, knows your story, knows what you're working through, knows what you're walking through, and can walk together in the struggles of life. That's the kind of church we want to be. And we don't just want to be that from the pastors and elders to you. We want to be that among yourselves. So if you feel new here, you can look around you and see a whole lot of other people that feel new here. Let's become family together as we, as we start meeting with one another. Um, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to jump in, series introduction. So we've been going through a Healthy Church series in Titus, and Andrew has done Titus 1 and Titus 2 so far. So the first one was Healthy Leadership, and then Titus 2 um, was Healthy Doctrine and Duties, and then I'm doing Healthy Families. Let's see if this works. Oh no. There we go. Boom. Healthy Family. So Healthy Church, a Healthy Family is part of a Healthy Church. And so turning your Bibles to Titus 3 with me, and let me tell you something about that. I am not going to be sticking to that topic. So that's my general topic, but I'm just going to preach what this text says rather than trying to fit it into a certain thing. So that's what we're going to do. We're, each week we're going to go through a passage, we're going to work through it, and we're going to tell you what it says, and then we're going to conform our lives to fit God's Word. Amen? Because you don't want my good ideas, right? We want to we hear what God has to say for us today. So um, this is a table of contents for us um, as we work through this. So with this passage, the flow of it is first... Uh, your father was and is radically gracious to you. Therefore, be radically gracious to others. And your father has done you good. Therefore, do others good. And at the end, he basically says, please don't be distracted and divided over petty things. Okay? So, we're going to jump right in, and I'm going to start reading. So, a little note, if you're looking at your Bibles, and what I encourage you real quick, um, I don't want to call you out, but bring your hard copy of your Bible with you. We're going to look through it, and it's actually really hard to see where you are on a phone, and we're going to look at the whole picture together. It's actually helpful when you read in, in the Word. You rem, your mind remembers where the, the words were on a page, and it helps you remember it. So I encourage you to bring your Bibles next week. 
Um, those of you that brought your Bibles, uh, you need to repent of the arrogance in your heart. <laughs> I brought my Bible this week. Excuse me. So um, bring your Bibles with you. We've got some in the back. If you don't own one, we'd love for you to take it home with you today. So I'm going to do a little Tetris here at first. Verse 1 and 2, I'm going to move to after verse 5. So we're going to jump in at verse 3, and I'll tell you why later. Okay? It says this, verse 3, Titus 3. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but because of His own mercy. Alright? So there we were. So we're going to jump in. This first point is that your Father was and is radically gracious to you. Your Father was and is radically gracious to you. So let's look at this verse. For we ourselves, okay? So what Paul is saying, when you look at this list, all right, foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to passions and pleasures, malice, envy, hatred. I raise your hand if you're like me and you were a good kid growing up. Like pretty moral, pretty good, went to church. I'm the only one. Wow. No one else? Okay. I look at that list. I mean, maybe the rest of you are heathens. But I look at that list and I'm like, that wasn't me. Anybody else with me? It's like, I'm not a malicious person. Anyone else not a malicious person? Right, we're going to have some audience interact. Okay, i got a room full of malicious people, okay? Hate, hating people, right? So I look at that list, and I get this picture of this, like, wretched human being. This evil, conniving, hating, envious, malicious person, right? And I'm like, that ain't me. Yet Paul is saying, we ourselves. Saying, me, Paul, who called myself in Philippians 3, I said, as to righteousness under the law, Paul was blameless. Right? He did everything right under the law before he met Christ, and yet he looks at this list and he says, that's me. He wrote it down. Why? Well, what is he saying here? Well, these all, if you look at all these things, these are all attitudes of the heart. Foolish, disobedient, led astray, that means deceived, slaves to passions and pleasures, malicious, envious, full of hate. Right? I can be all of those things, and you might never see it come out of my life. Right? Does that make sense? These things may have never set a ripple on the surface of your life, but they can be churning underneath the surface. And let me tell you, they were churning underneath the surface of your life, and they still can be. You see, we all were this list right here. Foolish, disobedient, led astray. That was you before Christ. Before Christ came into your life and intervened, that was you. And I think what we can do, those of us that have grown up around church have lived a pretty moral life, we can think, well, man, I was pretty good. Right? I, I, I was good enough. I was almost good enough. I know I wasn't the best. I know I wasn't perfect. And Jesus kind of needed to like bump me over the edge. Right? She needed a little bump by Jesus on the cross. I was almost there. I was almost to heaven, but he just needed a little bump. And that is not the gospel. If we don't comprehend the wickedness of our sin, where we were before Christ, then we will never comprehend the depths of God's love. If you'd ever first realized your sin and how wicked it was and how wicked your heart still can be, you'll never understand the gospel. That is the first step in the gospel. And that's what Paul is laying out. He's about to lay out this incredible gospel message. So, but, then he goes into but, okay? But, when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appears. This first word, but, right here. With this one word, he says, you were this. Wicked. You were all this, but. And with that one word, he says, but, it didn't matter. He washes it all away. He says, but, when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared. The goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior. He's talking about the loving kindness of God our Savior. He's talking about the Father. God our Savior. God the Father who sent Christ the Son to save us. 
when the goodness of so what is the goodness and loving kindness of God? Christ. Right? Christ came to the earth. Hebrews 12 says that he was the radiance of God, the exact imprint of his nature. Jesus came to earth to show us the character of the Father. He came to show us that our Father is out to seek and save the lost. Amen? Just like what we were. So the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared. Christ came radiating with all the goodness and the kindness of God the Father. But also, if you're a Christian, when God came on the scene of your life, He came clothed in goodness and loving kindness. He didn't come in wrath. He didn't come in judgment. He came clothed in goodness and loving kindness towards you. Despite your wickedness, despite anything you had ever done in your life and anything you would do, He knows the future. He knows your heart. He came and clothed Himself in goodness and loving kindness. He set His face to show you goodness and kindness and to never relent in that. That is the story of the Gospel. That's the story we see in Matthew of the prodigal son, right? The father who had been cheated, disowned, hated, had his fortune stolen, had his son go to another country and spend it all, wreck his name, take out credit, spend it on prostitutes, get addicted to drugs, end up in a pig pen with no friends and no money, addicted on drugs, no hope in the world, and he runs home and his father's been waiting for years and his father's sitting on his front porch and he sees his son far off, coming down the street. He doesn't recognize him at first because he's filthy, but he sees him coming. And instead of the father going back inside and says, I'll wait at the table for him. We're going to have a chat. The father lifts up his robe and he runs as fast as he can. He runs down the street, disgraced, disgraced. So everyone's wondering, what is he doing? That's embarrassing. And he embraces this filthy son and he hugs him, right? He sets his heart, he sets his disposition to show his son goodness and loving kindness. And he embraces him. And in that moment, There is nothing the son can say to him that will dissuade him from goodness. There's nothing he can say that will make him not kind and generous to his son. And his son's standing there, I'm sure he's like, but dad, you don't understand. Like, I I hated you in my heart. Like, I hated you. I know, son. I love you. But dad, I I, I took all your money and I went and I spent it. I know, son. I love you. But dad, I, I, I took credit out in your name and your name. Everyone knows that was your son. Your name is disgraced. I know, son. I know. I got the calls. I love you, and I'm glad you're home. But dad, I'm addicted. I'm stuck in this lifestyle. I can't get out. Make me a servant. I can't be your son again. I know, son. I'm going to help you. I love you. Come home. Come home. And the father takes a ring, and he puts it on his finger, and he restores his fortune, and he restores his reputation in his name. And he takes a cloak, and he covers over his nakedness. He covers over his filth, and he restores him to the family. And he takes him, and he throws him a party, And everyone in the community knows that this father has owned this son again with all of his filth and all of his addictions and all of his issues. Then he kills a fattened calf and he restores him to health. You see, that is the picture of what God your father has done for you. And he does that for you every day of your life, right? Because I wasn't just once foolish and wicked. I still have a wicked heart. Yeah, I'm a saint. You have a new heart. But guys, I sin every day. Anybody else with me? And I need a father who's going to come to me again and again and again, clothed in goodness and clothed in loving kindness. He's going to say, son, I love you. Glad you're home. I'm going to help you. It's okay. I know it all, and it's okay. I love you. That is the father's love for you and for me. Every day of your life. Listen, earthly fathers and mothers, you might have had a great dad and a great mom, but they failed, right? God, your father, does not come to you disappointed in you. He doesn't come insecure. He doesn't come frustrated at you. He doesn't come angry over your sin. He doesn't come cold and distant from you, waiting for you to make the first apology. Your Father comes to you with a big heart, wide open, 
ready to receive you. And there's nothing you can do to him that'll hurt him enough where he'll withdraw. That is the love of our Father for you. And let me tell you, if you don't know that God, I want to invite you. When Christ came, he came to seek and save the lost. And he is still in the business of seeking and saving the lost. He's not in the business of judgment and wrath. When he comes again, he's going to come to judge this earth. At that point, it will be too late. But right now, he is seeking and saving children. He's, he's bringing heirs. He's bringing sons and daughters into his family. And I want to invite you. If you see your sin, if you know you need help, need rescue, come to God. Admit your sin and receive him into your life. There's some of you that might have been around the church your whole life, and it's like, I've never tasted of that love. I never really knew God loved me like that. Just invite you. He's inviting you to come to him and receive that love for you. It has nothing to do with anything you've ever done. So he saved us. And just in case we didn't get it, Paul adds, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but because of his own mercy, according to his own mercy. That word according to means to the measure of. So he didn't save you. He didn't accept you. He doesn't love you to the measure of your good works. He loves you to the measure of his mercy, which is infinite, boundless. Nothing you can do would outpace his mercy for you. Right? That is the love of our God for us. So a healthy church family builds its foundation on the truth that their father was and is radically gracious to them. We want to be a healthy church family. We want that to be the foundation of the gospel, that our Father was and is radically gracious to us. All right, point number two. Therefore, work to be radically gracious to everyone. So we're going to jump in, um, and we're, and we're going to actually go up now. So this is the Tetris, right? So this is what happened here. Um, let's get the passage. So we have this, remind them, verses 1 and 2, remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities. You have that whole section, verse 1 and 2, for we ourselves were once. And what does Bill say if you want to CBC? When you see a four, you ask, what's a therefore? Super cheesy. So what you do is you say therefore instead. So all that is because. So we're going to move the four up top and put therefore. So therefore, we ourselves were once all that wickedness. God saved us. Therefore, remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, to show perfect courtesy towards all people. Because God was gracious to you and to me, we respond to that graciousness, not in a hoarding, not in a holding on to it, but in a radical graciousness to everyone around us. And listen, this was a radical graciousness that Paul was calling them to. Andrew's been talking about Crete. Crete was an evil place. Not only was Crete an evil place, but they were under an evil government. The Roman government was, was inhumane. They were perverted. They, were, they would pointlessly kill people. This is the same government that Hero stuck, Nero, stuck, he wasn't a hero, Nero stuck Christians on stakes and lit his garden with them as they burned. This is the same government that killed all the kids under two in Bethlehem when they were looking for Jesus. This is the same government that Herod killed all of his family members and all of his officials because he thought someone was going to steal his throne. This is a wicked, wicked government. And yet, Paul is saying, be submissive and obedient those rulers and authorities. Be ready for every good work. Speak evil of no one. No matter what they do to you, no matter how evil they've been, no matter how much they've hurt you, not even to vent. Don't even go vent, right? Speak evil of nobody, right? To be gentle, to avoid quarreling, to show perfect courtesy towards all people, to show honor to people even when they don't deserve it. That is the radical graciousness of God that God is calling us to. 
And the reason is because you were the same way. Right? In your heart, apart from the grace of God, you have the capability to be worse than Nero, worse than Hitler, worse than Stalin. Right? You have the, the ability to be worse than anything anyone could do to you, but for God. But God has come and intervened in your life, and therefore, who are we to then show harshness, unkindness, to slander, to speak evil of people? Who are we? God has appeared in your life. You are a beacon of his love to this world. Therefore, go and show radical graciousness. So the question is, how? Um, how, how do we show this type of forgiveness? Um, we, show it with, we, we show it with forgiveness. Radical graciousness. Yeah, if you have notes, write this down. Radical graciousness always begins with forgiveness. It has to. It has to. Graciousness begins with forgiveness. Ephesians 4, 32 through 5, 1 says, Be kind and tenderhearted, therefore, forgiving one another. So in order to be kind and tenderhearted, you have to forgive one another. As God and Christ forgave you, so you must also forgive. Be imitators, therefore, of God. Right? We are called to imitate God and his love for us. It has to start with forgiveness. And the question for us today, who are the people in your life who you are not gracious with, that you don't have a gracious heart towards? Don't you think about it. Is it a political party, a politician, a boss, a coworker, a neighbor? You're not gracious. You speak evil of them. You're not ready to do good works to them. As a matter of fact, you're ready to like poison their lawn or, or slander them on Twitter. Right? That, that's where you are. That's where your heart is. You're not gracious at all. You're not remembering who you were and seeing that they might still be caught in their sin. Who is that for you? Remember, you yourself were once the same way, but the goodness of God appeared to you and saved you. Therefore, forgive them as God forgave you and go be tenderhearted and kind towards them. Let's get closer to home. Is it your spouse? your children, is your mom or your dad. Maybe you've got years of hurt with mom and dad, um, however old you are, that you've never forgiven, you've never worked through, and you're bitter, you're angry, you've cut them off, you've laid down boundaries, right? Um, because you didn't want to deal with stuff. Some boundaries are proper, a lot of them aren't, right? Because you didn't want to deal with stuff, and so you're shoving it under the rug, and you've cut them off, and you're terse, and you're harsh, and you haven't opened your heart, you haven't begun the process. I'm not saying you have to be perfect next week. You haven't begun the process of healing. You haven't moved forward in forgiveness. Remember, you yourself were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves of various passions. But God in his goodness and loving kindness came to you and he saved you. Therefore, be compassionate, forgiving, tenderhearted to your parents. Is it your spouse? You got, maybe you have middle school age kids and you've got 10 years of conflict you haven't touched. You can't talk anymore, right? Life is crazy. and you, You've just been sweeping stuff under the rug, right? Like, just sweep it under. Like, we'll just deal with it next year, next week, or never maybe, right? And you've got like a, like a bath mat on an elephant in your living room. That's what it looks like. You've got so much stuff shoving that carpet. And, and, and in order to deal with it, you just shut your heart off. And you don't experience any true intimacy anymore. You don't experience any real transparency because you haven't forgiven. You haven't worked through that. God is calling you today to begin the process of forgiveness. Begin showing grace. To begin working through that with your spouse. Maybe it's your kids. Maybe you're frustrated. Your kids wake you up at night and you're angry, Right? I can be angry at an infant. I've been there, right? We all can. Like, forgive. Forgive your infant. Forgive your two-month-old baby. Whatever it is, work through this so that we can be a gracious people. So a healthy church family works to be radically gracious to everyone. Works to be radically gracious to everyone. All right, point number three. We doing good? All right, let's keep going. Um, Your father is devoted to doing you good. 
Um, I changed up there a little. Your father has done you good. Let's keep reading in verse 5 here. Um, so we're going to jump in verse 5, and we're going to, so he saved us, here we go, by the washing, so this is how he saved us, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. So the first thing um, was a, a disposition of his heart. His graciousness is his heart, right? That, that's how he sets his heart towards you, but that's not enough for us, right? Because it's not, it's not good enough that God just likes me, and he likes you, and he loves you, right? He needs to do something for me because I'm stuck in my sin. And, I'm, and I need rescue, right? Does anyone else in the room need rescue, like real rescue? I do, and I did, and I still do, right? We need rescue from our sin. And so God does good to us. He doesn't just love us. He, he does something else. He saves us, right? He saved us. He, he comes in, and, and God does not exist to give you a bear hug on Sundays, right? Give you a, a pat on the rear, good game, to tell you he loves you when you sin. That's not why God exists. Like, we need more than motivation and encouragement. We need salvation and rescue. And that's what God has done. So let's look at what He's done. He has saved us by the washing of regeneration. Regeneration is He's washed us and He's made us a new creation. Regeneration means new creation, recreation. He has made you, recreated you, given you a soul that was dead, is now alive. You can think about this. Guys, this is gospel that you heard your whole life, but you now have a soul that can commune with God. You didn't before, and now you do. That put a new heart in you. So you can walk with God, you can talk with God, you can hear from God, you can obey God, you can love God, you can love others now because you have a new heart. You've been regenerated, right? He regenerated us in the renewal of the Holy Spirit whom He poured out on us richly through Christ our Savior. This word renewal is anakinosis, okay? It's the Greek word, anakinosis, and, and it means renovation, okay? To make something better than brand new. To take something broken and renovate it and make it better than brand new. And let me tell you, when the Holy Spirit comes to dwell inside of you, He doesn't bring a bucket and a mop. Okay? And do a deep clean and then leave and say, hey, when you dirty this thing up again, call me. I'm back with my bucket and mop. Right? That's not what He does. He comes with His tool belt, ladders, a pallet of sheetrock, and he comes to do a long-term renovation. He comes to make a home in you, to do a live-in renovation. And he never leaves. Right? That's the Holy Spirit. That's what he does in us. And he starts knocking out walls and tearing out moldy bathtubs and moving around light fixtures. And he starts making a mess in your life. Like he didn't even bring a bucket and mop. Right? How many of you have ever lived in a renovation? Anybody? I have young kids. It feels like I'm living in a renovation, but I'm not. But there's, like, there's no point in a bucket and mop if you're in a renovation. Like You don't even have a vacuum in your home because it's just sheetrock dust everywhere, right? It's messy. When the Holy Spirit comes and He does His renovation, things get messier. And, and some of us don't realize this, but when you become a Christian, how many of you experienced that when you became a Christian, things felt like they got messier than they were before you were a Christian? Anybody? I felt that way. All of a sudden, the Holy Spirit started poking at things in my life, right? Like secret sins and idols that I had zipped up and shut, and all of a sudden, He starts putting His finger on it, saying, hey, it's got to change. you got to go talk to this person. you got to go confess this sin. you got to go deal with this. You gotta quit drinking. You gotta go quit looking at that online. You gotta go quit doing this. And all of a sudden, things are messy. It's like, what is, what is going on? I like that wall. That was a good wall. I love the wall. The wall was pretty. It had wallpaper on it, right? And you're tearing it out. And it's a mess, right? Every renovation the Holy Spirit does, every time He puts His finger on something in your life, it makes a mess. It's a healing mess. It's a good mess. It's a mess that's making you better than brand new. It's a renovating mess that He works in our life. Things get messy. And things blow up. When you, start, when you start confessing an addiction to pornography to your spouse or your kids, 
things blow up, okay? They do. But if you don't do that, the, the trap and the lie and the slavery you're living in and that you're, the way you're treating them and, and lying is, is death to your soul. Maybe it's alcohol. Maybe on a hard, stressful day, you run home to a drink, a beer, a wine, a bourbon, whatever it is. Maybe, maybe you're depending on that. And when you begin, when the Holy Spirit puts His finger there, and you take that out, you're depressed, you're stressed, you're anxious, because you have no idea how to deal with it, right? It's a mess. It's a healing mess. It's a renovating mess. It's a good mess. Maybe you've been living for the approval of your kids. Maybe you're afraid of laying down hard boundaries because they're going to tell their friends they don't, they don't like you and they don't love you and you've ruined their life and you've taken their friends and yet you start, Holy Spirit conviction, you start being a parent who lays down rules, proper rules, good rules, and holds to them. Your kids start to hate you. Your kids start to yell at you. Your kids start to slam their door and run in their room and it's a mess in your home, but it's a good mess. It's a healing mess. It's a mess that has consequences. It's a good mess. As God rebuilds you, and makes you better than brand new. And the question is, why is he doing all this? Why doesn't he leave me alone? Let me tell you, God doesn't leave you alone. If you feel like God is just leaving you to live your life of sin and idolatry, then you aren't a Christian, right? God does not leave his children alone. I promise you that, okay? Why doesn't he leave me alone? So that, being justified by grace, and being Christians, we might become heirs. It's not enough to justify us. It's not enough to clean us off. He wants you to be a child, an heir, his son and daughter. One who gets it all. One who bears the resemblance of their father. He wants sons and daughters. That's who he's seeking and creating and making you to be. The next question is, how do I get the courage to live the hard life of renovation and repentance? Right? How do I get the endurance and courage to live in the midst of the messes when I could just go back and live like the rest of the world? Perfectly at peace, fine, just soaking it all in. How do I get the courage? According to the hope of eternal life. Let me tell you something. Sounds depressing, but your renovation is probably not going to be complete this side of heaven, right? Your best life now is a lie, okay? We know that. Your best life now is a lie, but we, we don't tend to believe that. We tend to believe, oh, like, God's got this trial in my life, but that means next month's going to be awesome, right? I lost my job this month, but that means next month I'm going to get a better job, right? That's how we tend to soak in the prosperity gospel. That's not the gospel. Like, God could have you out of a job for a long time. He could have you scrubbing floors. He could have you doing anything for your good and for His glory. It could be painful for the rest of your life. For the rest of your life, it might be painful. You might, you might be trying to parent your kids well, and they don't love you for the rest of your life. And it's painful, and it's hard. But we're not living for this life, Christian. Are you living for this life? I'm not. The Bible calls us to live for the next life. Your life should not make sense to the watching world. Because you're living for eternity. That is our hope. Nothing in this life can be the hope for the Christian. It has to be the next life. So the Holy Spirit is renovating your heart. He's making good messes, healthy messes, healing messes in your life. He's doing you good for your good, that you might be like your father. So a healthy church builds its foundation on the truth that their father is devoted to doing them good. Your father, your father is devoted to doing you good. Therefore, the next passage, work to do others good. Therefore, work to do others good. All right? Let's keep going. Um, we have verse 8. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. May be careful to devote themselves to good works. So we're going to kind of do some observations on this section of Scripture, on this verse. So this is the outflow. God has been good to you. He's done you good. He's poured out His Holy Spirit on you. He's doing work in you. He's doing you good. Therefore, you go and do good to everyone. Like, live a life 
of good works. So the first thing, the saying is trustworthy. What saying? The gospel. The gospel saying he just said, the love of God for you. And I want you to insist on these things. What's he talking about? Preach it over and over and over again. Let me tell you, we're talking about who our church is. We're going to be a church that preaches the gospel week in and week out. And you're going to be a people that preaches the gospel to one another week in and week out. And you're going to be a family that tells the gospel to one another week in and week out, that reminds one another of the love of God for you, that reminds you that you're a sinner and it's okay, that God's loved you and he's renovating you and he's calling you out of it and he's giving you the strength to obey. That's the type of church we're going to be. Amen? So we're going to insist on the gospel. We're going to go to the Old Testament at some point and do a book of the Bible, and we're going to talk about Jesus in the Old Testament, right? Because the gospel is all throughout. God saving his people through Christ on the cross. So the gospel produces these good works. The next observation, those who have believed God. He's about to say good works, and good works is said six times in Titus. But there's a Roman Catholic theology that we've all heard, that that good works have something to do with God's pleasure in you. That somehow good works equal God liking or loving or accepting or saving you, and it's nowhere in Scripture, okay? Good works always follow belief. He's saying those who have believed in God might devote themselves to good works, not Devote yourself to good works that you might believe in God. Devote yourself to good works that God might love you. No, 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 no. It's not that. He's making sure that you know this is only for the children of God. This next statement, be devoted to good works, is only for God's children. If you're not a child of God, don't, don't listen to what I'm about to say, right? You need to get saved first. You need to experience the love of God for you first. His affection, his forgiveness. Those who have believed God. The next observation is that good works are not automatic. There's another theology that we tend to believe and we tend to say that if I, that the gospel produces good works in me. That if I look at the gospel and believe it enough, that it's going to produce righteousness in me. And we're missing something in that statement. Because it's not just that if I hear it enough and read it enough and worship to it enough, that good works are just going to start happening, right? It's, it's not that. I, I can sit with my Bible all day long and, and do two-hour quiet times in the morning and hear the gospel and yet go and live like a pagan the rest of the day. Live for myself. We have to devote ourselves to good works. So good works are a response to the gospel. So we hear the gospel and we respond by by living it out, by saying, God has loved me. Holy Spirit, help me. Jesus, help me to love my neighbor, love my family, and to do good to them, right? Because God has loved me. It's not automatic. And be careful. They take great care. You have to be careful. You have to be intentional. This looks like on a Thursday night sitting down and planning out how you're going to spend your weekend, not for your own pleasure, but for others' good. This looks like at the beginning of your work week, sitting down and praying, how can I bless my coworkers? How can I bless my boss? Not going in to make all the money you can, going in to be a beacon of light for the Father in your workplace. Men, devote. Devote means to maintain in an increasing fashion. Good works are not the, um, a, a, a moment of inspiration. Good works are the accumulation of a life well spent. Okay? It's not just that you come out of here and you go have a great afternoon mowing your neighbor's yard, right? It is that by, by slow, incremental acts of kindness and forgiveness and goodness to others, you begin to build a life that is worthy of the gospel that God has given us, that, that, that displays the goodness of God to the watching world. Amen. And then the last thing is this. Um, what are good works? Good works are the shining forth of the love of the Father. So, um, so Matthew 5.16, so there's a, there's a rule in Scripture called the, the law of first mention. So when you want to know the definition of something, you go and look at the first time it was mentioned. So the first time good works is mentioned was in Matthew 5.16. And you know it, it said, uh, you are the light of the world. Jesus is talking to his disciples. 
Um, a city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Um, no one lights a lamp and sticks it under a basket, but on a table, so it gives a light to all in the house. In the same way, you let your good works shine before others that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. So that's the first display of good works. And the cool thing about that is there's three first mentions. The first mention of good works is the first mention of the church is the light of the world. It's talked about Jesus is the light of the world, but the church is the light of the world. It's the first mention of God is our Father. If you bring those together, what we have as a theology is that good works are the radiance of a good father. It is us being the father's character to the watching world. It is, it is God's children bearing his resemblance and going out and doing others good because the father has done us good. You are the light of the world now, Christian. Right? You are the way that people see Christ. Christ is in heaven next to the father. The Holy Spirit has filled you so that you can be his witnesses, so that your life and your words can mingle together to be a display of the Father's love for the world. That's our life, right? That is what God has called us to do, this life of good works. So a healthy church family works to be devoted to doing others good. Healthy church family works to be devoted to doing others good. And then I'm going to end on this point. It's like Paul puts a little like tag on here um, at the end. And he says this, and don't be distracted and divided over petty things. It's like, I've said all this, like, gospel, beautiful, graciousness, and goodness. And he's like, and please stop arguing, okay? He says this, um, he's like talking to his kids, um, right? So these things, good works, are excellent and profitable for people, but avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they're unprofitable, they're worthless. And as for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. Knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. So look at this progression here, okay? Avoid starts with a foolish controversy. Foolish controversy is uh, me and you sitting down and, and having a nice little banter about whether God chose me or I chose him, right? He clearly chose us, but we're not going to talk about that right now. Um, and we're having a little banter, right? We're back and forth. Or like, what? Like, do we like hymns? Or do we like worship music? Praise and worship, right? We have a little banter back and forth. Foolish controversy. That controversy gets a little heated. And it's like, well, I don't really like you anymore. But that's okay. Controversy. And then it moves. So at the time, genealogies was what they were, were arguing about. That's not it for us, right? Anybody, when was the last time you argued about a genealogy, right? But that was it for them. They were Jews, and they're, they're, that's their deal. Let them have that. Um, dissension. So the controversy moves into a dissension. A dissension is when you begin to say, hey, can you believe that this guy believes that, that God chose us? Right here? Can, you, can you believe that what he thinks about worship? Let me tell you what he said to me. And then the other guy's like, can you believe what he said to me? Right? And then you get sides. And it starts spreading. Right? And then you've got sides. You've got a line drawn up. You've got sides on either side. And then it turns into a quarrel. Right? A quarrel is next. You start doing shots. Now in the church, shots look way different in the real world. Right? Shots are like walking past someone. Hey, good morning. Right? And walking on past or like being cold or like not talking to, you know, whatever it looks like in the church world and just a bitter heart, a cold complexion towards other people like, hey, how you doing? Can you believe it? Right? It's, it's these shots are fired. Like a battle is happening. And then look at the next verse. Division. Right? A person who starts, then division happens. Dissension, quarrel, division. Now you've got a divide in the church. Now you've got people that are genuinely hurt. People that are stuck in their place. They've built trenches. They're down in there. They built a house in their trench. Like, they ain't moving, right? And when you think about this, how, how, what, is the, what is the example of a preference in the church that divides people? The color of what? The carpet, right? Color of the carpet. 
the side of the piano's on on the stage, right? It's like stuff like that. But, but let's get real for a second, okay? What about for us in a new church plant? There are millions of things that can do this to us. And I need to warn you about those, okay? Um, children's ministry. Big one. You love your kids. You love what happens in there, right? And you've got great ideas. You can let that divide us. We can start talking to other people. We can start stirring up dissension. I've got great ideas. I've got good preferences, right? Start stirring up dissension. I know they're not doing this. They should do this, right? What about youth ministry? Hey, can you believe they don't have a youth ministry yet? Or when we have one, can you believe what they do for the youth ministry? Like, it's ridiculous. Like, they should do this. It's a great idea and it's a preference. But then we dissent and we fight and we quarrel and then we divide, right? It can be worship. It can be preaching. Do you hear Andrew up there? Awful, right? It could be anything like that, right? It could be these things. It could be Sunday school. It could be community groups. It could be men's and women's Bible studies. Like, CBC Savannah has a men's breakfast. Well, y'all have men's breakfast, right? Whatever it is, like, I don't know what it is for you. We've all got them. I've got them. I got a lot of them. I got a hundred. I can list them right here, right? We all do. And it's great to have a sense of ownership. But if we let that thing become a foolish controversy, a dissension, a quarrel, and a division, it'll tear the church apart. Tear you apart and everyone with you, okay? And Paul is saying, please. No, do not do this. And let me tell you something. The things aren't petty. That's a tricky thing in the church. Children's ministry, not petty. Youth ministry, not petty. Um, worship, not petty. Preaching, not petty. And your ideas aren't petty. They're not small. But let me tell you what it is. The controversy, the dissension, the quarrel, it's petty. It's tiny. We're all, we're all, we, need, we need to be unified in reaching this community, the gospel of Christ. We need to be unified in doing works of the ministry and building up the body of Christ for the name of Christ. His name is on the line through our church. So Paul is telling Titus, do not let this happen. And he's so extreme that he says, whoever stirs up division, warn him once, warn him twice, kick him out. It's one of the three instances the New Testament tells us to remove someone from the church. Unrepentant sin, um, unreconciled argument um, that someone won't repent of, and then division in the body. There's elders to step in and remove someone. This is a big deal in the heart of God. We don't want to do this. God is serious about this. And why? Let me just finish with this. Why is this a big deal to God? Gospel. God has owned you as his child. He didn't fuss and fume about the petty things in your life when he saved you. He didn't even touch those things. Right? He came in and he dealt with a big problem in your heart. And now slowly over time, he's working on those things. But there are a hundred things in your life that God's got a problem with. I promise you that. He's not even touched them yet, right? He doesn't fuss and fume over those things in your life. He just showers you with love and affection and slowly starts that renovation process. Therefore, let us not fuss about the petty things in one another's lives. Let us not fuss about the petty things in our church. Let's be united together with a good heart on the same team for the glory of God and the gospel. That's what Paul is calling the church in Crete to. So he's calling us to as well. A healthy church works to be undistracted and undivided over petty things. So here's how I'm going to conclude. A healthy church family is a gathering of God's children who work to be radically gracious, devoted to good works, undistracted and undivided, because they have experienced the radical grace and abundant goodness of their Father. Man, that's us as a church. Let me pray. Um, the worship band is going to get up here, and we're going to sing. Father, thank you. Thank you that you have loved us. Thank you that you have poured out your affection on us. I don't deserve it. God, I am foolish, disobedient, led astray. God, I'm a slave to passions and pleasures. And yet you have loved me and you have come and made a home in me. And God, we thank you for that. God, I pray, I beg that we would be a church that overflows 
and graciousness, radical graciousness to those around us. Pray that we be a church that overflows in abundant goodness, that we do others good, that we would be known in this community for radical goodness, radical graciousness, God. Pray that we be undistracted and undivided. God, please, please, God, keep us from division. Keep us from being distracted by petty things. Let us unite under the banner of Jesus Christ for your glory and the good of this community and the gospel. We love you. We love you. We love you. Praise things in your name. Amen. Y'all stand with me. Um, I'd encourage you. Uh,